Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. A special welcome as well to everyone listening online. I think Amsterdam is our biggest city that listens to our messages online. And so welcome to anyone from Amsterdam uh, that's listening or anyone from Chilton that's on holiday in Amsterdam and listening. Uh, great to have everybody with us. Okay, uh, we are going to be uh, making a bit of a detour out of our series in Mark. Um, as you know, throughout the course of this year so far, uh, we've been journeying through Mark's gospel. For Easter, we are going to jump into John's gospel. And so if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open them up to John, that would be great. Um, if you have a Bible on, a, on some kind of portable device, you can switch it on uh, and move to John chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. And we're going to read from verses 9 through to verse 19. And really trusting that this is going to be something to encourage us, to inspire us, and to hopefully launch us into something of a new season together as, as a church. Um, as I was thinking and praying about this morning, um, I think something that I became really aware of, and, and reading this passage as well, is that learning to embrace God and embrace the ways of God when God does things that we don't expect. When God works in ways that we don't expect. Perhaps in ways that we would not think were possible for God to work in our lives or in the lives of other people. It's learning to embrace God in those times becomes incredibly important in our development, in our relationship with Jesus as we grow deeper in our relationship with him. And it's often I found in those moments of transition, those moments of, of expectation shift, where we can go in one of two directions. We can either say, you know what, we trust God and in the midst of this change, we're going to track with God because we believe in him and we trust in him or we disconnect from him because now things are happening in a way that we did not anticipate, that we did not expect. And as we disconnect from him, we miss the opportunity to receive the seasonal blessing that God would have for us in that moment, in that time. Uh, and we miss that opportunity to go deeper with him. And so I want to pray for us this morning that as things are going on in our lives, uh, I'm not sure perhaps what kind of expectations you had coming into the day. I was expecting that the golf, the Masters was going to be on late this evening. And that's was going to be what I was doing after I got home from the worship night. That's now not happening because of the rain. So, you know, I've had a big expectation shift in the day, uh, but you might have something much more significant than having to work your calendar around the golf schedule. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm praying that as we are in the seasons that we're in, in our lives right now, if there is change, if things are happening in ways that we were not anticipating, that we wouldn't miss the way that God wants to reveal himself to us in this time and miss that opportunity to be able to go deeper with him. So let's, let's pray together before we jump into John chapter 12. Father, I thank you 
for the way that you are with us in every season of our lives. Thank you, God. Lord, I thank you that you are never taken by surprise. We are so often surprised by the circumstances of our lives. We are so often surprised by the things that you do. And yet you are never surprised because you know the end from the beginning. Thank you, God, that you are the one that goes ahead of us and prepares good works for us to do. You are the one that's written all the days of our lives in your book. You know the future perfectly and completely. And so you are able to take our hands and journey us forward into everything that you intend for us. And so, Lord, I pray for our present and our future. I pray that our present and our future would be determined not by our past, but by God, what you are doing right now among us that we would be able to track with you into everything that you have for us, individually in our lives and together as a church and as a community. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, right, so John chapter 12, bit of background before we get into verse 9. This is six days before the Passover, and, and Jesus is journeying now towards um, Jerusalem, and on the way, he comes to Bethany, uh, where he stops uh, with um, Lazarus, who he has recently raised from the dead, um, and he stops at this place knowing that this is sort of one of the final, this is one of the final moments in the runner up to him having to suffer and to die to be betrayed in Jerusalem and to suffer on the cross for us. And while he's there, Mary, and, and this can be quite confusing if you're reading the New Testament for the first time, because there are so many Marys and they don't always give you the surname to be able to know which Mary's being spoken about. But this is Mary, Lazarus's sister at Bethany. And we have this incredible story of Mary and how she anoints Jesus with oil and wipes his feet with her hair. And it's not just any kind of oil. This is this incredibly expensive perfumed oil. This was a lavish gift, a, a real expression of costly devotion ahead of Jesus' betrayal and death. And it sort of sets the scene for us, for those of you, uh, if you are reading through the Gospel of John, it would set the scene for us of what is about to come for Jesus, almost a preparation ahead of time for Jesus' burial. And I think it also shows, and we'll come back to this in a moment, that Mary of Bethany was quite switched on to what Jesus was really all about. And what Jesus was here to accomplish to do. We see that many people aren't as switched on as she is. But she's quite clicked in, if you like, to Jesus' real purpose and why Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Um, and I think that's quite significant. But word gets out that Jesus is on the move and he's on the move towards Jerusalem. And that this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is in town. And so everyone is sort of now coming out to see him and to see uh, Lazarus as well. And that's where we pick up the story. So um, I'm not sure if you can load that up, Chris, if you've got it there. Um, that'd be great. Oh, brilliant. Thanks. Okay. So verse 9, I'll read from verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, 
but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay, just a couple of things about that before we carry on. Because this is an interesting time now for Lazarus. You think, well, you know, he didn't really ask to have a, have a, a, a target painted on him uh, and because of his, he was dead and Jesus raised him from the dead. Um, he didn't really have much to do, for, do with that. But he has now become, because of the work of God in his life, he has now become both a sign for people of the goodness of God And his testimony is inspiring people to look to Jesus. And at the same time, he's become a target for those who were set against Jesus and of their hostility towards Christ. And I think there's something quite profoundly helpful for us in that, to realize that, to recognize that. And that it's this, that when people's hearts are set against Jesus... Even the good things that God does in our lives and through our lives can become a target for their hostility. And when people's hearts are open to Jesus, the testimony of our lives can point people incredibly radically to come to God. Uh, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, uh, and he's speaking about his own life and ministry. He says, we are to God... The pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. In other words, he's saying because of the way we're living our lives, because of our testimony, because of the gospel that we're sharing with other people, we have become to God this pleasing aroma. Our lives are a blessing to God because of the way that we are living. And he goes on to say, but to the one We are an aroma that brings death and to the other, an aroma that brings life. In other words, we can be doing life just as God intends, living just as God would want us to live and being a blessing to him and having many people come to Christ because of our life and testimony. And yet for some people, we will become an object of their hostility. Because their hearts are already against God. And it's important for us to recognize that. And I I felt I needed to share this because I know that many people in the church right now are really experiencing God doing incredible things in your lives. Seeing God, experiencing God. There is a testimony of the way God is at work in your life. And we can have the wind knocked out of us. And I've definitely had this happen to me where God is doing something great in your life. You have this testimony to share. You go up to someone to share it. You talk about what God is doing. And the response you get is more of a chief priest response. You know, you get aggression and mockery and ridicule rather than what we really should receive, which is seeing people recognize the goodness of God and the testimony of God in our lives. Does that, does that make sense? I'm not sure if you have experienced that as well. And I, I wanted to share this because I want to encourage those of you that are seeing God at work in your lives. That this is a time to be sharing what God is doing with others. And it does mean that our lives will become a target for some people's hostility. But the blessing is that our lives 
can become the reason that people turn to Jesus. And our lives become a pleasing aroma to God. And many people find the opportunity to come to faith in Christ because of us. But there's a fear boundary that we have to cross. And I don't want to hide that from anyone. There is a sense that every time we share about the good things that God is doing in our lives, we do run the risk of finding people who are chief priests in our society, who are already hostile to God, and they will use your testimony against you, just as they did here for Lazarus. But I want to say it's worth it. It's worth it to live your life in such a way that you can become the reason that people turn to Jesus. And how amazing to know for the rest of eternity, there have been people who are there because you took the risk to share what God is doing in your life. And to know that they're there because of that, that you were the signpost that they needed. Okay, that's a little excursion. Let's carry on. John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, or praise to God is essentially what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it's written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Okay, we'll pause here for a moment as well, just to explain a couple of things that hopefully add some significance to this passage so far. I was reading in a, in a commentary about this, and Kostenberger notes in his commentary that the large crowd gathered at the Jewish capital at the occasion of the Passover may have totaled up to or even over a million people. Um, some have suggested, I think the Jewish historian Josephus suggested it could have been nearly three million people that were in the city at that time. That is a lot of people for an ancient city uh, to have. This was not a small affair. This is not a couple of people coming out to see Jesus on the road. This is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have gathered in Jerusalem, who've now heard about Jesus and all the things that he's doing, and they they're coming out to see this man who has raised Lazarus from the dead and who is potentially the Messiah that has finally come and come to the people of Israel. And if it sounds a little strange that they're grabbing palm branches and, and sort of waving them and laying them down, that's not just because they had a lot of them to hand, okay, or they, or they thought they looked pretty. There, is, there was some real significance behind that. In, in Psalm 92 verse 12, for those of you perhaps taking notes, um, there is this link between righteousness and palm branches that is made in the psalm as an illustration. And so among the Jewish people, there was this link that was made between palm branches as a symbol of righteousness. And not just as a personal symbol of righteousness, but it became a symbol for the righteousness of the nation of Israel. It became, if you like, a national symbol of God's presence among his people and his choosing of the nation of Israel. And so they're waving palm branches and they're putting these palm branches on the road and they're actually signifying we recognize both the righteousness of this Messiah who is coming 
And we recognize the significance of what is happening for the nation of Israel. So that's why they were using these um, palm branches. And, and then uh, that we see they quote from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add this extra piece, blessed is the king of Israel. That's not actually found in Psalm 118, but they are making this interpretation. They're understanding this is what is happening. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is it who comes in the name of the Lord? It is the king of Israel. And they know that because Jesus has given them the clearest sign that he can. And it's a bit odd for us. He's riding on a donkey. Okay, so we perhaps don't think in our day to day that, you know, entering the town on a donkey would signify, um, you know, that you are an incredibly important person. You know, if that was going to happen today, how would they do it? You know, you'd probably come in on a helicopter or something like that, or, or there'd be some kind of car parade and there'd be flyovers of jets and there'd be, you know, troops walking in ahead of you and, and there'd be fanfare, wouldn't there? And yet we see the Messiah comes on the donkey, and yet that is the sign for these people that Jesus is able to make to actually make it clear, I am the king of the kingdom of God who's now come among you. And it comes from Zechariah chapter 9, uh, and, and I'll just read a section of it. It says this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And verse 10 goes on, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. That is this prophetic word that is ringing out, if you like, among the nation of Israel. This is what they're looking forward to. This was the hope that they had of the Messiah who would come and bring about the rule of God from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. And he comes to bring peace. And it's interesting within the, the sort of uh, ancient Near Eastern world at this time, kings would ride on donkeys or war horses. And you would know what you were in for depending on how they were coming into your town. So they come in on a war horse, you know you're in for a battle. But they come in on a donkey and they come proclaiming peace. And that's the statement that Jesus is making. I am the king. I'm here not to make war. I'm here in righteousness to bring peace to the earth. And the kingdom that comes with me will cover the whole earth. That's the statement that he's making. I find it amazing, though, that uh, the disciples and the crowds are able to catch so much of this and yet so wholly miss the point at the same time, uh, which seems to be quite a trend for the disciples. So it goes on verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. They understood some of it, but they didn't understand all of it. Only after Jesus was glorified and the Holy Spirit was, as a result of that, poured out on the church, did they really get it. Okay, so only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. 
Now the crowd that was with him uh, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he'd performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone, come out to meet him. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Um, and it's amazing to me that we have the disciples and the crowds are able to catch, okay, the Messiah is coming. He's proclaiming that he's the king. And yet in their minds, they're still thinking, right, this is it. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish the nation of Israel. We are going to be special again. And everybody else is going to be under our thumb, just the way that it's meant to be. Is sort of the sentiment that's in the crowd. And it's quite sobering to realize how quickly these millions of people are able to turn against Jesus as he does not live up to the hope and expectation that they had for him. And how they weren't able to track with God in what God was doing. They wanted him to do what they wanted. And there's excitement as long as that's happening and yet the minute God shows, well, actually, I'm doing something you close, but it's not quite like that. Yes, the Masters is on today, but it's not going to be on in the evening. It's going to be on in the afternoon. Um, God is going to do something slightly different to the way that you're anticipating. And yet we see the crowd turns on him rather than tracking with him. It's also interesting we get this comment from the Pharisees. They seem to unknowingly prophesy the ultimate goal of God um, as, they, as they talk sort of pessimistically about their plans to be able to put Jesus down. They haven't been able to do it. It says, look how the whole world has gone after him. It's almost this statement that they're making that eventually the whole world will have the opportunity to turn to God because what God is doing is not just for the nation of Israel but for everyone. And so I've been thinking about this, this sort of progression that we see of the people who become interested in God. And perhaps you know people who are interested in God. Maybe you're here and you're someone that's interested in God. And as you become interested in God and you hear about the things God has done, you become hopeful about how God might engage with you and the things that God might do in your life. And then God acts. And then we have this opportunity. Do we surrender to God? Do we recognize the wisdom of God? Or do we come into judgment of God and become opposed to him as the crowds did? And, and I feel this, there's something that God is wanting to call out of us in this season. That same exuberance of praise that we see from those people as Jesus is coming in. I'm sure that must have been such a spectacle to witness, these hundreds of thousands of people lining the, lining the road as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And I sort of think, well, when we worship, when we praise, um, when we are praying, when we're having our devotional time, when we're trusting for God to enter into our lives, what does it look like for us to bring that same exuberance of praise to him? And yet at the same time, I think, to bring something of the costly devotion that Mary of Bethany was able to bring to Jesus. And that recognition, Jesus, I know you're doing something that I perhaps don't fully understand. But as you do that, I'm willing to give my life to you. And I'm willing to surrender sort of all I have to you and to trust that you know 
what is best. A couple of scriptures that I've had in my own devotional time through the course of this week. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Isaiah 55, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a place where you're reading the Bible and you think, you know, I don't really, was that really necessary, God? Did you have to do it in that way? You know, you could have done it like, has anyone ever thought that? Or is that just me? Okay, where you look at it and you, or, or something happens in your life and you, and you kind of look back on it and you go, I, I'm sure I could have done that better. You know, God, if you'd given me just the opportunity to step into your council room, you know, and I could have put my idea on the table, I think this may have been better than what you came up with. And it sounds terrible to, to outline it like that. But I think in our hearts and minds, we can sometimes feel like that. We think, you know what? I could have done this better than you can. And what we've actually done, we've become like the crowd that turn on him. And we're saying, we believe in this instance, we can think through this better than you can, God. And we become the, ju- the judge of God, as opposed to those who are meant to be in submission to him. And I, I feel that, that we perhaps need to apologize to God for that and make a commitment to say, God, I, do, I choose to believe that your ways are always higher than my ways. And if I have a thought, it will never be as good as yours, that your thoughts are always better than mine. Yeah? Does that, does that make sense? And I think it's, it's almost like if we can do that, if we can make that faith, and it's a faith decision, if we can make that faith decision to say, every thought I come up with is not as good as God's. Every thought that God comes up with is better than mine. I will not stand as God's judge, but I will allow him to be my wisdom. It's almost like we step into an elevator and we get to press the top button and and sort of shoot up to another level of intimacy with God. As we lower our hearts before him, he lifts us up. As we walk in surrender, he pulls us into greater relationship with him because he now is able to bring us into his counsel. And the beginning of wisdom is actually the fear of the Lord. Not for us to stand in judgment over him, but for us to come under him and under his wisdom and his revelation. Is that okay? So what I thought we'd do, and if I could ask the worship team to come up, and you can obviously still pray through this as well. I'd like to lead us in a prayer just to say sorry to God for the times in our hearts and in our minds that we have stood as judge over God in our thinking. And to recognize his wisdom is always wiser than ours. And as we do that, to invite the spirit of his wisdom to wash over us afresh. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for the times that I have stood as a judge over you. The times when I have criticized your decisions and your actions and your ways. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for thinking that my thoughts 
are in some way better than your thoughts. That my wisdom is in some way greater than your wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. And I pray that you would establish afresh in me a heart and spirit of humility before you. And I choose today to affirm my belief that your ways are always higher than mine. That your thoughts are always higher than my thoughts. That you are the great and awesome, all-powerful and great God. And I choose to bring my thinking under your thinking. I pray that you would forgive me and pour out afresh in my life your spirit of wisdom. That I might know your thoughts and follow in your ways. Thank you, God, that my heart would be a heart of exuberant praise when I understand you and when I don't. And when you work in ways that I cannot understand, Lord, I pray for a grace to continue to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.